Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Today I have a table to separate us. I don't know if you remember being at high school and sometimes you walk into a science um, lab and they have this big science bench up the front. Does anyone remember that? And the, the science teacher would be behind the science lab. Margot's probably going to get upset with me. Terrible design of a classroom because it separates you from the, uh, the people that you're trying to communicate with. But we're going to move this in a second. I've, I've left this here because I want to do a quick recap of what we did last week. We're in the middle of a three-week series called Find Freedom. And we're actually looking at this, this letter that a guy called Paul, he was, or some people call him the Apostle Paul, he's a church leader and he wrote to the churches of Galatia and we're in week two. So I want to do a very quick recap of week one. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia because he had started these churches and some people had come in after he'd preached this incredible message that we are rescued by God from our sins, purely because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Paul had um, proclaimed that message over and over again. Some false teachers came in, they were known as Judaizers, and they started teaching something very different. And to illustrate that, I just want to recap something I did last week. Imagine that straight after this service, I'm walking down the road and I get splattered by a truck. It would be a tragic event, I know. And I, I basically find myself at the gates of heaven and God calls me into his office and he asks, Mark, why should I let you into heaven? And, and I have to sit down in God's office and I have to give a bit of a, a reason as to why I think you know, God should accept me, why he should give me eternal life. And I pull out my briefcase and I say, well, God, let me tell you a bit about me. I've done some good things in my life. I, I won the responsibility award in grade seven. That's not made up. That's legit. You could even clap me for that if you want. That was a big deal, right? I know. I was the first person in the school. I never got detention in high school. I, as far as I know, I've never, you know, never really done anything illegal, you know, other than maybe, you know, who knows, what, speeding or whatever. <laughs> nothing, nothing criminal. Anyway. <laughs> I'm not dodgy. Anyway, so (laughs) this is not working out the way it was meant to in my mind. Um, And I've also done some religious things. I've gone to church. I've read the Bible. I've even been involved in leading some churches. I've done some stuff. And he's like, look, that's great, Mark, but what about Jesus? I'm like, oh, sorry, I almost forgot about Jesus. And um, hang on, hang on. Jesus, that's right. I also believe in Jesus, and Jesus did some things on my behalf as well. I did some things on my behalf, but Jesus, he, he lived a life that I couldn't live. He loved people that I would never have loved and, and was patient with people I would never be patient with, and certainly the way he forgave people that I would not even, you know, to be honest. I mean, Jesus lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died on the cross to pay for my sins in full, and he rose again. Now, here's the go. If I present this to God, and God says, well, Mark, that's great, but the standard for heaven is perfection. Is what you've put on the table perfect? Now, the answer to that, of course, is no, because I haven't been completely honest. Because when I look at my record, it's not just that I've done some good things and we won the responsibility award or whatever, but I have actually done some terrible things as well. I've gossiped behind people behind their back. That's a terrible thing to do. I've been unkind to people that I should have shown kindness to. I've been apathetic towards people and apathetic towards causes that I should have cared about. I, I, was, I, I, I lacked at times gratefulness and joy and generosity when I, I had every reason to be grateful and, and joyful. Like there's, there's a whole heap of things that when I look at my life, it's far from perfect. And, and when you look at your life, you would say similar things. 
So if the standard for heaven is perfection, and what I've put on the table is not perfect, is this going to cut it? And the Judaizers, the false teachers who had come into the churches of Galatia, they had said, in order to be saved, you must add your efforts to the work of Jesus in order to be saved. But the problem is, this is not going to get us there. The only way I can truly be rescued by God is if I take what I've done and I say to Jesus, I say to my heavenly Father, this is not going to cut it. And I get rid of it. And I basically say, I am betting my life and eternity solely and only on what Jesus has done on my behalf. This was the message of Galatians 1. This is what Paul was saying. If we want to be accepted by a perfect, holy God, if we want to have eternal life, the standard for heaven is perfection. And what we put on the table must be perfect. So in in order to do that, I must rest my faith, my life and eternity solely in what Jesus has done on my behalf. And that is the message of Galatians 1. So that's a recap for those of you who weren't here last week. Can we give Mel and Bryn a big round of applause, our roadies today? Look at them. Oh, look at this. This is fantastic. I feel very guilty just watching this happen. Oh, awesome. There we go. So... The question we want to ask today is, okay, if that's true, I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to say, that our life and our death, sorry, that our our life, our efforts don't count at all. That's an extraordinary thing to say. That it doesn't matter how you've lived, how you've lived in the past, how you're living in the present, how you're living in the future, none of that gets brought to the table. The only thing that matters is what something or someone did in history on our behalf. This is an incredibly extraordinary thing to say. And it kind of doesn't really make sense because if you know anything about the Bible, you would know that there are commands in the Bible. In fact, when God had called Abraham to go and build a nation and eventually he got to giving him commands, well, not Abraham, but giving God's people commands, the Israelites, they're also called the Hebrews or the Jews, for those of you who are trying to study this stuff. When God gave his people, the Israelites or the Hebrews or the Jews, commands, he gave them instructions that he expected them to obey. Now, you might know them as the Ten Commandments, but there were more than 10. There were 613 commandments. So how can we say that it doesn't matter how I've lived, it only matters what Jesus has done for me on the cross. It doesn't really make sense. The question we want to ask today is simply this. What then is the purpose of the commands? If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what then is the purpose of the commands? And in order to look at this, I want to look at Galatians chapter 3. Paul knows that this question is going to be raised, so he addresses it. Let's have a look. Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? Why did God give all these commands? He says it was added because of transgressions. We know that the law came through Moses. God gave Moses not just the Ten Commandments, but 613 commands. And he didn't give the commands because he thought this is just, he was just bored. He had nothing else to do. He gave the commands because of transgressions. God knows and we know that we are not perfect. We're far from perfect and we're not very good at living our lives the way that we ought to live them. So God gave us a whole heap of commands on how to live. Uh, in fact, in Leviticus, um, it uh, God actually says to his people, Leviticus is a book all about the law, and he actually says, You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man or woman whom obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. In other words, God's people were expected to obey his commands. 
One way to think about this is to think of God's law, hopefully I can do this without, like a ladder. That actually what God's people had to do was obey. They had to try. They had to be faithful. They had to be committed. They had to earn their way. If they could climb high enough, then they would be accepted. If they could climb high enough, they would be blessed. If they could climb high enough, they would be welcomed into eternal life. And the whole old covenant, the whole agreement that God had with his people was an agreement of blessings and curses. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. If then, if you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this, you won't be blessed. If you do this, you won't be cursed. If you do this, you will be cursed. It's a covenant, or it's a covenant or agreement of blessing and curses. Now, then Paul goes on to say, listen, that was the old agreement. That was the old covenant. That was the law. It was like a ladder. But then he goes on to say, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Seed meaning Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is everything changed once Jesus stepped on the scene. Now, our creative team had done an incredibly great job with getting this ladder and some other props for me today. What I really need over this side is an elevator. Unfortunately, they weren't able to build a massive elevator. So you just have to imagine that. But really what Paul is saying is, Yes, the law was like a ladder. You had to obey in order to be blessed. But then Jesus comes along thousands of years later and there's a whole new system. This is the system of grace that we don't get blessed because we have obeyed. But actually there was a man, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he gives the gift of eternal life. He gives the gift of a new life. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a gift. It is not like a ladder where we need to exert effort. We need to be committed and faithful and obedient and try to climb our way. It is much more like an elevator where I simply entrust myself into Jesus's hands. I entrust myself into the elevator and it does all the work from start to finish. It is a free gift. Now, if that's true, the question gets erased, and Paul's just so logical here. Already this is the question that springs to mind. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? In other words, is this message of law, you must, you must not, in order to be blessed, is it opposed to the message of the promise of grace, which is saying it is freely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? These seem to be, in opposition to each other. These seem to be very two different, to be, to, to be two very different systems. So what Paul goes on to do is answer this question. Absolutely not. Before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, what Paul is saying is, as I try to climb the ladder, as I begin to realise I am unable to obey, I begin to feel imprisoned. And I'm imprisoned by my guilt and my shame and I begin to feel condemned. I am imprisoned by a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And if you're sitting here today, if we're sitting here today saying, I feel that at times. I feel like I don't have what it takes. I feel like I can't cut it. I feel like I'm not good enough or committed enough or faithful enough. That is what the law produces. It makes us feel imprisoned by our shame and guilt. But the purpose of that is that we would then cry out for freedom and it would point us to Jesus who came not to 
give us more commands, not to, you know, condemn, not to cast out people, you know, and, and cast shame on them, but he came to free us from condemnation and to save us. Now, he goes on to say, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that those of us who put our faith in Jesus, we no longer are condemned by the law. We no longer have to be measured up to the, to the law. We no longer look at the law and feel condemnation, shame and guilt. But we now live in the elevator. We now live under grace where we are free of guilt, shame and condemnation. So Martin Luther, who was the, the, the person who started the whole Protestant Reformation a little over 500 years ago, when he was studying this, oh no, it's okay, I'm good. It's just glass, people. <laughs> That's all right. I'm so sorry, Mel. Were they expensive? <laughs> Safety first. Look at Brindley go. There you go. So if you have little kids, maybe keep them away from this area. Okay, right. So um, Martin Luther, when he, um, when he was dealing with this whole thing, he said, listen, if you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand the whole message of Christianity, it is imperative that we understand the difference between law and grace. In fact, he actually said, until we understand the difference between these two systems, the entire Bible is confusing. Now, this will not be the best message you've ever heard. I'm not doing very well today in terms of my health, and this is probably a bit heavier in terms of the kind of stuff that we're doing. It won't be the most entertaining or interesting message you've ever heard in your life. But it may be one of the most important because what we're talking about today is one of the keys to understanding the message of Christianity. It's one of the keys to understanding the Bible. And Martin Luther actually said, if we do not rightly distinguish law and grace, the whole Bible gets confusing. He went on to say, what is this bruising and beating by the hand of the law to accomplish? This, that we may find a way to grace. The law is an usher to lead the way to grace. God is the God of the humble, the miserable and the afflicted. It's in His nature to exalt the humble, to comfort the sorrowing, to heal the brokenhearted, to justify the sinners and to save the condemned. This is unbelievable what he says here. The idea that a person can be holy by himself denies God the pleasure of saving sinners. What an incredible quote. He then goes on to say, God must therefore take the sledgehammer of the law in his fists and smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom and self-help. When the conscience has been thoroughly frightened by the law, it welcomes the gospel or the message of grace with its message of a Saviour who came into the world not to break the bruised reed, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted and to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. What an incredible message of God's grace we believe. This is it. Please get hold of this. The law condemns. If you're feeling condemned, if you're feeling guilt, if you're feeling shame, if you feel like you don't have what it takes, it's because you're sitting under the law. That's its intention. But the ultimate intention was not to leave you there. It was to drive you to grace, drive you to the one who came to save so you could be free of all of that. In fact, Martin Luther and John Calvin and the other reformers said, listen, it's great to think of the law like a ladder, but it's probably better... Make sure I don't break this as well. <laughs> it's probably better to think of the law like a mirror. 
Is everyone okay? Everyone just checking out their makeup? Is, is everyone all right? Okay. Everyone's looking at everyone else now. This is the worst thing to do as a communicator. Okay. Martin Luther and John Calvin actually said, it's much better to think of the law like a mirror, that when I look into a mirror, I see this incredible picture of God's holiness, but I also see a reflection of my true self. And when I compare my true self to God's holiness, I am aware I, have, I do not have what it takes. I am not good. I am not kind. I am not always joyful. I am not always grateful. I am not always loving. I'm not always forgiving. The law does its job by showing us a true reflection of ourself so that we would go running to Jesus as our Saviour. Um, one way to think about this, if I can summarise this very quickly, it's simply to say this. The law was never meant to save us. It was meant to lead us to the one who can save us. The law was never meant to save us. It was meant to lead us to the one who can save us. Now, in order to kind of apply this, and again, this is not necessarily the lightest message you'll ever hear, I want to look at some practical passages from the Bible that maybe some of you have heard of. I think are often misunderstood. Now, again, this isn't going to be light. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's incredibly important. So we're going to ask the question, what was he thinking? We're going to play a little game called, what was he thinking? Before we do that, check out this video. A man has ruined a weekend away with his girlfriend by saying what he was thinking. <laughs> Our reporter, Emma Bradford, is at the scene. Martin Bishop and Eleanor Shaw had stopped at a cosy country pub after a romantic walk when Miss Shaw looked up meaningfully at Bishop and asked what he was thinking at that very moment. <laughs> the weekend was about to go very wrong indeed. I was hoping he would say, maybe this would be a, a great place to bring the kids one day. <laughs> or even something corny but sweet like I have everything I'll ever need right here. And what did you say, Martin? I said, pigs are much bigger than you expect. <laughs> One of them was so big you could ride it. More from us later. Okay, so we're going to play a game called What Was He Thinking? We're going to look at a passage in the Bible, two passages. The first one is about a rich young man who approaches Jesus and we're going to try to figure out, you know, why it is that he was thinking that the law was like a ladder, but actually Jesus was thinking of the law much more like a mirror. Um, if you have a Bible there, you're welcome to turn to this. There's actually four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. If you're interested in exploring Christianity or kind of new to church, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are not about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John primarily. They're actually about Jesus. They're named Matthew, Mark, Luke and John because that's the author of the book. It's a very strange thing to name the book after the author rather than what it's about. Um, but Matthew is a biography of Jesus written by Matthew and he starts out in chapter 19 saying this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we go anywhere, this man, this young man, this rich man, by the way, is he approaching Jesus via grace or via the law? He's approaching via the law. What must I do? It's a dead giveaway, right? What must I do? He wants to know 
What must I do to climb the ladder? How high do I need to climb? What is the last rung that I haven't yet reached? Now, Jesus says something very confusing. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, this is confusing for two reasons. Number one, I think it's fair to say, even if you're not a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist or Muslim or whoever, most people would all agree Jesus is good. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's really up for debate. I think that's probably one of the most accepted things. Jesus is good. And many of us would say, at least a third of the world's population would say, Jesus is also God. So Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? There's no one who's good but God alone. Jesus knows he's good and he knows he's God. Why is he asking that question? But I think what he's saying to this rich young man is, listen, You think you're good because you've lived this upright, righteous life in society. You think you're good because you're successful. You think you're good because you've made a lot of money. You think you're good because you've you've done some things in the, the, the Jewish law required. But before I go anywhere, Jesus says, before we even get into the answer, I just want you to know, don't think you're good because you've done those things. No one's good but God alone. He then asked the question to the rich young man, why do you call me, oh, sorry, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. What's he doing? Jesus is quoting the law to this young man. He's basically saying, if you want to know what rungs of the ladder you need to climb, I'll give you some rungs. Now to his shock, I think, and to my surprise, this rich young man, He basically says to Jesus, what? All these, right? The teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Can you imagine saying to the Son of God, I've got them covered, Jesus. You don't need to tell me about those commands. I know the 613 commands. I know the 10 commandments. I've got them covered. I'm not asking about the commands I know about. I'm asking about the commands I don't know about. You must have me confused with one of those sinful people. You must be having me confused with one of those tax collectors or prostitutes. I'm a righteous young man. I don't know why, Jesus, you're quoting those commands to me. I want to know what's the commands I haven't yet seen that I need to cover. How arrogant is this? To think, I mean, I have not obeyed the commands in the last five minutes, let alone the last, you know, however many years since I was a boy. How arrogant of this young man. But rather than argue, which is probably what I would have done if I was Jesus, Jesus, it says he, took, he looked at him and he loved him. If you want to know what is the next rung, if you want to know a command that you haven't heard, if you want to know how to get there, if you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life, I'll give you a rung of the ladder that you can't reach. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. Here we've got this rich young man treating the law like a ladder. I must climb. But Jesus begins to turn the law and use it like a mirror. He uses it to expose the fact that he is actually not as good as he thinks he is. He's not been obedient as he thinks he has been. He is a sinner who needs a saviour. And unfortunately, in this case, this rich young man, rather than plead for mercy, he walks away. Many of us know people who've been in church for some time and they feel like they don't have what it takes and they walk away. Or maybe that's been your experience. You've walked away from church or God for some time. And often it's not because of God's grace. It's not because you've just had too much unconditional love. It's not because you've experienced peace and joy that that God offers. It's because of the law 
The law has exposed our sin and it's made us feel guilt, shame and condemnation. The main reason people walk away from God and religion and church is because of the law. But there is another way. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, well, who then can be saved, Jesus? The fact is this man was an upright citizen in society. He was successful. Lots of people looked at him. Some people might have even said, yeah, if anyone could have obeyed the the laws since he was a boy, this guy's, you know, I mean, he's not perfect, but he's pretty good. If this guy can't be saved, then who then can be saved, Jesus? And Jesus says, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. In other words, if you want to earn your way, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, there is another system. There is a system of grace where you simply rest in what I do on your behalf and is 100% possible when God does it from start to finish. The rich young man treated the law like a ladder, a means to get to God, a means to get eternal life. But Jesus uses the law like a mirror to expose his need for Jesus in the hope that he would run to Jesus to be saved. Let me give you another example. And again, I'm trying to pick examples that maybe some of you may have heard of. This is from Luke chapter 10. Again, Luke is another biography of Jesus. Luke writes, um, what you come to see is a very famous passage. Luke 10.25, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus, which you just think, man, what are you doing? Teacher, he asked, what must, the same question again, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, he asked the same question, exactly the same question, word for word. Now, Jesus, again, realises that this is a young man or you know, trying to earn his way. He wants to know how to get to the top of the ladder. So Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Now, the, rich, the, the, sorry, the teacher of the law could have gone through the Ten Commandments. He could have even expanded on the Ten Commandments and gone into more and more laws. But he's very wise, this, this young teacher of the law. And he says, look, let me just summarise what I think is the best way to summarise the whole law in two commandments. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and then love your neighbour as yourself. In other words, Jesus, look, rather than go into the 613 commands, rather than even go into the 10 commands, I think these two commands sum up the law perfectly. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. If you want to know, the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life, what should you do? Do this and you will live. Now at this point, I think the teacher of the law gets, gets a bit nervous He's very religious. He might even think that he's been able to love God pretty well. But he starts to worry about this loving the neighbour bit thing. And he starts to freak out a bit. And he says, okay, because he wanted to justify himself, that is, he wanted to make sure he was right with God. So he asked Jesus, okay, can I just clarify one thing before I go? Who is my neighbour? And then Jesus goes on to tell one of the most famous stories in history. People well outside of Christianity have heard this story, often quoted significantly out of context, both inside the church and outside the church. It's rarely quoted in context. This is the context. Here is a guy wanting to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. Here is a guy trying to climb the ladder. He summarised the law into love God with all your heart, mind, strength and soul and love your neighbour as yourself. He then gets worried that maybe he hasn't been able to love his neighbour or he's not sure who his neighbour is. He's just a bit concerned about that part of it. So he asks Jesus, who is my neighbour? 
So Jesus says, let me tell you who your neighbour is. If you want to earn your way, if you want to love your neighbour as yourself, let me tell you who you've got to love. There was a man attacked by robbers, Jesus says. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, a priest is a religious leader by the way, when he saw this man, this Jewish man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, another religious leader, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, now you need to understand, this is a Jewish man. His own people from his own religious community, the religious leaders within his community, have left him on the side of the road. The priest and the Levite have just left him dead. But a Samaritan, now Samaritans and Jews did not get along. In fact, Jews looked down upon Samaritans. They were seen as half-castes. They were not considered to be one of their, their, their party, one of their group. They were despised by the Jews. And Jesus has specifically, he's making this story up, by the way. Jesus is telling a parable. This is not a real life story that happened. He's making up a story to tell a point, to make a point. Jesus deliberately puts the Samaritan in, someone who is despised by the Jews, someone who's despised by the man on the side of the road. You would think the Samaritan of anyone would go, I'd just leave him there. He hates me anyway. He, he looks down upon me. He probably doesn't even want me touching him. Leave him for dead. But the Samaritan, Jesus says, but a Samaritan took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asks. And the answer, of course, is the good Samaritan. That's what we've all come to know. The good Samaritan is not a random person. The good Samaritan is a man who was despised by the man he rescued. Now Jesus is saying this. Which of you do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now this is the context. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is the last rung of the ladder? Love God, love your neighbour. Okay, fine. Who's my neighbour? Your neighbour, Jesus says, is the one who despises you the most. The one who, who hates you. The one who doesn't want you going anywhere near you. You see them on the side of the road. You go love them and care for them and you pour out your life into them. That's what it looks like to love your neighbour. What is Jesus doing? He's using the law as a mirror to expose the sin and the depravity inside the teacher of the law's heart. He's not trying to say, just do this and you will live knowing that he can do it. He's given him an impossible demand that he knows he'll never be able to meet. He's using the law like a mirror to show him his sin and his need for Jesus. Okay, I just want to finish with a couple of things really quickly. Here's the guy. If we don't get hold of this, it's going to be super confusing. This is what I think happens. There are some people who read passages about the law in the Bible. You better do this, you ought to do this, and if you do this, you'll live. If you do this, you don't, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they freak out because they come to church and they hear about God's incredible grace. But then they go home and they read the Bible and they start to freak out because they're reading about God's commands and how you order or you ought not. And if you do, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. And they freak out. So one option is you just ignore all the passages about the law. And I totally understand that because you're not sure what to do with it. A worse thing that happens 
is that people oscillate. They read passages about the law and they're freaked out. And then they come across a passage about God's grace and they're like, oh, okay, it must be grace. And then they go back and they read another passage about the law and they're like, oh no, I'm in a lot of trouble. I better try harder. And then they read a passage about God's grace. Oh no, God's loving and forgiving and kind. And they oscillate back and forth, back and forth because they don't understand the true purpose of the law. Or a third option is what the Galatians did and they begin to merge the message of law and grace together. They begin to think if we can combine this message of the law and the message of grace together, then maybe we've got our bases covered. Let me give you some examples of how that happens today. This is going to sound confrontational. I'm not mean to be confrontational. I'm trying to be helpful and clear. You sometimes hear people say in church, in order to become a Christian, you must make a commitment. What does that sound like? Does that sound like law or grace? Commitment is about what I do, right? Grace is about receiving a gift, receiving Jesus. There's a very big difference between making a commitment and receiving a gift. Now, you might say, well, I use the word commitment in the same way you might commit yourself into hospital or commit yourself into a doctor's care. That's fine if that's what we mean. But it's a confusing word and it's not a Bible word. The Bible doesn't talk about commitment. You're not saved by faith, you're saved by commitment alone. You're saved by faith alone and grace, by grace alone and Christ alone. Is this making sense? Or another thing that people will say is this. In order to become a Christian, they merge law and grace together. You must, you know, be your grace, God forgives, all that kind of stuff. If you put God first. If you put Jesus first. I don't want to be rude, but all the best in putting Jesus first in every part of your life, in every different way, every aspect, in, in all moments, at all time. Like, you can't do that. The first commandment, which is law, is put God first. And we fail miserably. You don't need to put God first in order to be saved, to be rescued. Or some people say it like this. In order to be rescued, in order to be saved, you must make a promise to obey or promise to live for Jesus. Who's heard this before? This is merging law and grace. This is the confusion that people have. Can you imagine, I don't want to be rude, but can you imagine sitting under the weight of the law, being thoroughly convinced that I cannot obey, that there's nothing good that lives in me, and you run to Jesus and say, Jesus, please save me. I promise to obey you if you save me. And you're like, hang on, the one thing I can't do is obey. This is ludicrous to say, Jesus, you know, if, you, if I live for you, Jesus, and I promise to obey, would you save me? Jesus is going to go, that's what you haven't been able to do. It's not Christian to get to Jesus too quickly. We must first sit under the weight of the law and be thoroughly convinced we cannot obey. A Christian is someone who comes to Jesus, falls at his feet and says, everything about my experiences has convinced me oh, there's nothing good in me. I am made in your image and I am loved and valued, but there's no righteousness in me of my own accord. I cannot obey Jesus. I need a saviour. I need a saviour from the consequences of my sin and I need a saviour from the power of sin. I need you to do everything from start to finish. It is all you, Jesus. That is what it means to be a Christian. So here's the three options that are wrong. One is to ignore all the passages in the Bible about the law, and I get that. Another one is that people oscillate back and forth, and that must be a traumatic Christian life. 
But the third is to merge law and grace, which is what the Galatians were doing. The fourth way is to say, no, this system of the law is intended to have a purpose, but not to save, but to lead us to the one who can save us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what it means to be a Christian. What if you stand with me and we'll pray? Father, we just acknowledge that we can find this stuff pretty confusing. It's not necessarily easy. But as Martin Luther said, we must come to understand the difference between law and grace. We must come to distinguish it correctly. So Father, in this moment, I pray that what is a fairly complicated message, would you make it simple and clear in our mind? Would you embed so clearly the purpose of the law and the purpose of grace? Would you help us to be able to rightly divide the two? And would you give us the faith to believe, Jesus, that you are full of grace and truth, that you came not to condemn but to save, and give us the faith to believe that now. We pray these things in your name, Jesus.